How you doing? You doing good? That's good. This is very energetic because many of you just spent a week uh, of, of VBS with a bunch of kids and uh, it, it was great. Uh, if you were a part of that, you know how amazing it was. If you weren't, you missed out, but there's always next time. And so uh, we got to serve, I think, over 105 different kids during the week. And that took about 70 adults and teenagers to make it happen. I'm so thankful and grateful for church as, as we stepped up to serve kids in our community. Can we give God some praise for that? <clears throat> now, we got, to, we got to sow a lot of gospel seeds into the hearts and minds of those young ones. And so we want to continue to pray for those, those kids that, that those seeds would grow that God would water them, and whether they come and be a part of this church body or another church body, pray that they would know Jesus as their Lord and King, as the hope of their world. And that's what we want to know for you and me. That's what we want for us to experience, too. Now, many of you will uh, hear, maybe, that I co-led threes and fours. That's not true. I was a helper of a rock star, Laura, uh, because uh, here's the thing, y'all, it, it was crazy and good and, and exciting, and I'm still in that mode of, of three- and four-year-olds, okay? Uh-oh is right. So I thought to get our, our time started uh, today that we would look at a kid's book. Go ahead, go ahead, right there, boom. The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Anybody know that story? Anybody? Okay, cool. Uh, so I, I saw, I don't know when it happened, but it had uh, a 50-year anniversary from when the book was released. I don't remember when it was released, but I can remember uh, like reading this book uh, as a kid a lot. And I remember, I think it was my grandmother or something like that, reading me this book a lot. And I always loved the part where you got to, if you're familiar with the book, you got to the part where the caterpillar gets hungry and starts eating all the stuff, right? It's got these different little pages that, that all build on each other and it ends with like dessert of just immaculate, you're like, oh, I want some of that. You know what I mean? Uh, and anybody ever fasted before? You, you, okay, cool. So like one of my, uh, the longest times I've ever fasted, at the end of that, to break my fast, this is what I decided to do. Uh, I was so hungry, right? I was so hungry that I went to Taco Bell. And, and y'all, I, I ate like a very hungry caterpillar. And let me just tell you, that was not a good idea because Taco Bell will break more than just the fast. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't recommend that. But I ate like a very hungry caterpillar. And, and the story goes, right, we, the, the caterpillar grows and it grows and then it gets so big that it can't eat anymore and it, it spins itself inside of a cocoon and then uh, time, a little time goes on and then out pops what? A butterfly, that's right. And I, I, as I was thinking about that, because it, it illustrates what we're going to talk about today, uh, I was thinking, like, what is the real process? Because that's really, like, the, the amount of knowledge I've got about the process, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar going to a butterfly. Uh, so, I, so I did a little research. You know, I, I gave a shout-out to, to my friend Google, and I got some information. And this might not, you might already know this, but I thought it was really compelling, so I get to share it. And so, so this is what happens. The, the, the caterpillar, you know, is born out of an egg, and then it starts eating, and then it, it sheds skin, it grows, and, and then it keeps on happening, right? And eventually, it hangs upside down and, and uh, weaves itself into a cocoon. And here's where it gets interesting. 
the process of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, it starts to digest itself inside of the cocoon. Y'all know that? That's some crazy stuff. So like if you, if you cut up, don't, don't do this. If you cut open a cocoon at the right time, just some ooze will kind of spill out. Because what happens is, is the caterpillar digests itself and all of the, the cells start to multiply and exponentially grow. And then uh, as time goes on, it becomes a butterfly. Now, that's the amount of knowledge I've got on it. Uh, but I thought that was crazy, right? Like it, it, it digests itself and almost ceases to be and then it builds itself right back up. And we know that God's in the process of doing that. And I just thought maybe, maybe God gave us a sermon illustration with the metamorphosis of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. I just, I just thought maybe, maybe God was up to something when he did this. Because if you take a step back from that process and, and you just think about what's happening, this is what I thought about when I, when I was like just thinking about a caterpillar going to a butterfly. The caterpillar had to cease to be a caterpillar for it to become what it was supposed to be as a butterfly, right? It had to go through a process of transformation. Uh, it had to experience a change for it to be who it was meant to be. And then as it comes out of that cocoon, it had to learn what it's like not to just walk around on some leaves, but to fly. But to fly. It, it's a different kind of thing now. The, the caterpillar going to a butterfly, and as we talked about last week, we, we, we talked about kingdom redemption, about the fact that God gave you a gift, not a loan, right? He gave you a gift of grace, not a loan of grace. In other words, you don't have to keep up with the payments to try and make sure that you've got God's grace. If he gave it to you, it's yours. You get to receive that as a gift. And, and, and what God did is he not only just saved us from our sins, but he is transforming us from the inside out to be different people than who we used to be. Anyone else in here, you know that you went from death to life, from darkness to light. You know that you went from the domain of darkness, the domain of the devil, to the domain of the King Jesus. Anyone else have that as your story? And so as we think about what does it look like then to live the Christian life, that's what we're going to talk about today, the kingdom ethic. What does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? What does that look like? Because uh, Jesus doesn't want us to just talk the talk. He wants us to walk the walk. He wants us to walk the walk that he walked. And it goes from being a caterpillar to crawling around to being a butterfly. So church, I think it's time to fly. It's time to fly. And so what we're going to look at today is, is really uh, a, a continuation of us examining a picture of what the church is. So we've, we've been in the series called Unstoppable, the church and her mission, and we're looking at different themes. And we're, we're almost done with the theme of the kingdom because that's one of the pictures that God gave us when he talked about what his church is, his unstoppable church, is that it's a kingdom. And a kingdom has a king. What is that? It's a, he, a kingdom is a king, a people under the lordship and authority of a king but also comes with a kingdom is a, a, some land and a law. And so the law, the, the way of life for followers of Jesus is what we're gonna look at today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Luke chapter nine is where we'll be for, for the beginning and then we'll, we'll move to Matthew five. Uh, Luke chapter nine, 
verse 23, uh, Jesus is in the midst of, uh, he just got done talking to his disciples about the fact that he's going to suffer and die and then rise again on the third day. So for those of you who are not sure about Jesus and the the historical uh, account of his resurrection, I mean, the guy called it, you know? He said, hey, I'm gonna do this. And then he rose from the dead. He did it, and so I'm with him. Guys, he's calling it, he raised him from the dead, and he did it, I'm with that guy. Anybody else? So so then he, he gets done with saying, hey, I'm gonna suffer, die, and rise again. And then he says this, verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone, anyone, that's not just some people, this is not just the people you like, not just people who look like you, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's three words that have to do with the kingdom ethic that we're going to talk about today. The first one is the cross. Cross. I don't know what it is about this verse. I think I kind of have an idea. This is like one of my, if I, if I had to give you like my top three Bible verses Bible passages in scripture, this would be one of them. And, and I, I kind of like speaks to the way I'm wired, the way God's wired me. Kind of like an all or nothing kind of person. You know, like some of, the, some of that is like, it's taxing on me, you know? It's like, if I'm gonna be doing something, it's gotta be all in, 100%. If I'm not, it's just like, eh, I ain't concerned about it. But, but, you know, Jesus isn't interested in our half-hearted commitment. He's not interested in half-hearted devotion. He's not interested in 50%. He's not interested in being the sprinkling that we put over our lives. He's not interested in being the the four times a year fertilizer we put on the yard of our life. Just to get it to look a little bit better. He's not interested in that. He wants everything, every part of us. Every, every little piece, every little crevice, every little nook and cranny, he's wanting all of me. And, and I'm just so glad that Jesus would call me out like that because that's what I needed to hear is that Jesus is the king and he's saying, Brandon, you can't do anything apart from me. You have to surrender everything, everything, nothing held back. You, you can't just leave me aside for Sundays and that's it. Or better yet, one hour out of 168 in the week. I've got to have it all. And, and, and so Jesus looks at us. And I think he knows a lot about us, right? Like he knows, this is what, what's so interesting about this. He knows that uh, when, when you're getting ready in the morning or when you're getting ready for bed at night, that person you look at in the mirror, that's your enemy, and married people, I don't mean your spouse, you know. <laughs> you know, you, got, you guys are getting ready. You look, no, I'm, that person that you look at in the mirror, when you're in front of that thing, he knows that that person is one of your greatest enemies because that person will either lead you down a path of destruction and oftentimes when we're following that person, that's where we go. 
And so Jesus looks at us with our nice manicured lawns, our successes, our accomplishments. He looks at us with all of, our, all of the stuff that we have accumulated to make us feel like we're doing a good job. He looks at us with our scientific advancements. He looks at us with our technological advancements. He looks at us with all the things that we look at and are like, we've got it going on. He looks at us with our Western mindset, our, our higher than thou values. We are known by him. He knows the truth about you and me. And he knows the truth that in order to follow him, he says, if you want to come after me, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to be with me in paradise, if you want to know the, the heavenly father, if you want to be with me, you've got to know that it begins with saying no to yourself. It, it begins with saying no to you. And I know, like, for a lot of us, like, we want to crawl into our comfort zone in every area of life. We want to just kind of, we, we just want to get in our cocoon and stay there. We, we want to just be happy. But Jesus is calling us to say no to that person in the mirror, that man, that woman in the mirror, and say, I'm going to follow someone else, and his name is Jesus, and I know because of what he did, he's gonna call me to something far different than what I would ever sign up for on my own, whatever I, this is, none of the good things that we do deserve to be praised by us. Like we should never be praised for the things that we do. It was all God. It's always been him. And so he looks at us with the truth about us and he says, listen, the key to following me is saying no to yourself because I'm gonna take you places you don't think you can go. I'm gonna stretch you beyond where you think you can stretch. You're gonna to touch your toes again, my friend. That was a joke. <laughs> and so Jesus looks at us and he knows the truth about us. Uh, you know, he, he knows that the world says, hey, you need to preserve yourself. You need to look out for yourself. And Jesus says, pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Be a walking sacrifice every single day. The world says it, the, the key to life is living life to the fullest, getting as much experience, um, as much uh, happiness out of this life as possible. And what Jesus looks at us and says, right after he said, take up your cross, he says, the way you will find your life is by losing your life for me. He knows that the world says, hey, to, to win means that you've got to uh, have power over someone. But Jesus says the best, the greatest in my kingdom is the one who will come and serve and take the low spot, the low spot. And so Jesus knows what the world says. And get this, the cross, so it's the first part of the kingdom ethic, the cross, what we should live by, it shapes us and guides us and gives us character and identity. Jesus took a tool of death and made it our way of life. Jesus took what was supposed to be a deterrent, a deterrent from rebellion and made it the rally and battle cry of his insurgents, the cross, take it up. He took what was supposed to be an instrument of death and made it the, the hope that we have because on that cross, he won the victory. And so he's saying, hey, you, you've now, on this side of the resurrection, we know what Jesus did. The disciples weren't sure yet, but now we know. And so he's saying, you need to follow me. He, he wants us to get to the point where we're saying, hey, I don't know what is best. 
My plan, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems good. I feel like I've got it all covered. But I don't know what is best at the end of the day. And he wants us to come to the end of ourselves before we are able to go and follow him. And so the kingdom ethic begins with the cross. It begins with us saying no to ourselves and all of the things that this world will put in front of us as a carrot for us to go and accomplish or try and acquire. And he's saying, I want you to follow me. Uh, Matthew, Matthew 5, the second word in the kingdom ethic, the first one is cross, was cross. The second one is a big word that we often don't use is righteousness. Righteousness. Doing the right thing, being morally upright. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is getting done with the introduction of his sermon. This is what, what many people have called the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest one. The greatest one's already been preached. It's all downhill from there. Uh, he, he, he opened up his sermon with, hey, you want to have a blessed life? You want to have a, a good life? This is how you do it. And then as he's transitioning out of his introduction to his sermon, he says this in verse 13, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> he looks at his disciples. He looks at you and me. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the, the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he goes on, he says, you are, you, my friends, disciples, Jesus, followers of Jesus, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in the first century, salt would have been used for a couple of different things. Um, of course, taste, you know, like uh, anybody who watched like uh, the Chef Ramsay stuff, you didn't have enough salt on it. You need to get some, add some salt. It's going to help the taste. Uh, by the way, if, if you've ever, go, anybody gone to Chick-fil-A to eat, it ruins the rest of your fast food experience, doesn't it? You know, because they just made it so much better. And, and that speaks to the second uh, use of salt, especially in the first century. What they would have been thinking of is preservation, like fighting against corruption of, of the meat. They used it to, to keep it going, to keep it good so that they could eat it and not, get a bunch of infections and all that stuff. And, and so what that says to me is that, that as followers of Jesus, he's saying you are the salt of the earth. That means that we are called then to fight against the corruption that the enemy wants to bring in to the world and, and corrupt the good things that God has created. And how many of you know that God, is, God has created all things good and then, and then the enemy wants to come in and thwart that and make it bad, make it be a, a tool, an instrument of getting people's focus away from God and on themselves or on that thing. That's what happens, and, and God's calling us to be salt. Not even calling us to, he's saying you are the salt of the earth. You make, you're supposed to make things better. You're supposed to, supposed to preserve things. If you see something that's out of whack, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth that goes in and makes things good again. And, and that's what we're called to. And he says, you are the light of the world. What does light do? It invades darkness. And we all get the imagery, right? We, we know that the world is full of darkness. It's full of corruption. What he's saying is, as far as Jesus, you're supposed to be distinct. The church is supposed to be distinct 
because the light is what invades the darkness. The salt is what fights against the corruption. I was reading a book uh, called Subversive Jesus. It's by a missionary named Craig Greenfield, and he told the story. They were in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, in Canada, and they were in the, uh, I believe, East Downtown neighborhood. And it was right outside of Chinatown. And he said they moved in and they had kind of a community that they went in together and they would live among the people they were trying to reach. And, and this is what happened. So they're, they're in their block, right? They, they have a block in the city and uh, this is kind of their, their neighborhood, right? And, and he said that uh, it was very clear to him when they got there that this was like a, a central point for a lot of Asian drug dealing because there was Vietnamese drug dealers all across uh, the, the block. And then basically every, every doorway was filled with drug users shooting up heroin or, or uh, smoking crack cocaine, like all these kinds of things. And, and, and so he, he said that uh, they would try and they would try and like get to know the drug dealers because they knew that if, the, if they got to the drug dealers, they were the, the source of the, the oppression, the power, the influence. And, and so they started to get to know them and they, they found out that these people weren't, you know, just like some evil people, but they were people who were broken. They had their own brokenness and that's what was perpetuating their activity and their behavior. And uh, they got to know them, and, uh, but things got worse. And, and, and so they were trying to think about like, what should they do? I mean, like, think about this. This is what his situation was, right? He, he would ask, uh, ask people, hey, please don't leave your, your crack pipes in my doorway. Like, please. He's got kids stepping over crack pipes and, and needles that people use to shoot up heroin. And, and, like, that was his situation. So they were like, we've got to do something. I mean, that's what followers of Jesus do, right? We look at that the evil and the corruption, and, and we say, we've got to do something. And so they, they got together and they started kind of brainstorming. They knew that on Welfare Wednesday, which is like the day that uh, people who are on welfare got their checks, and that was the day where the drug dealers were out in swarms because they knew people had money. And that was the greatest day of temptation for someone to get rid of their addiction because they knew that they had resources and they had opportunity to get that which would get them high. And so they, they said, we're gonna do something on Welfare Wednesday. We're gonna do a block party. Because they knew that, uh, this is a funny thing, uh, one, one of his friends that, that became a follower of Jesus used to be a gang enforcer, like an enforcer for a gang. And he was like, hey, you want me to take care of them? And he's like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna bring light and love. <laughs> we're not gonna overcome violence because that's what that guy was used to. Like, you know, you got a problem, we're just gonna handle it. Uh, and so they decided to do a block party to bring some light to the darkness. And he said that it was crazy because after they got done with the first one on Welfare Wednesday, the, he said that it was something about the spiritual uh, situation, the spiritual environment that changed in that block because uh, from that day on, they continued to do the, this block party on Welfare Wednesdays every month. And, and from that day on, none of the drug dealers came back. Because light had come into the darkness, except for one. Except for one. His name was Crazy Kenny. <laughs> Crazy Kenny. You can imagine he's got a reputation that precedes him. He says that he can never forget the day he heard a knock at the door, and he goes to open the door, and it's Kenny. It's him. And, and he had known him and known of him as one of the guys that they were trying to talk to, and, and sheepishly, Crazy Kenny asked them, hey, can you, 
can you help me get over my addiction to crack cocaine? Because he knew that there, this, this community of Jesus followers would take people in who were trying to get rid of their addiction, and they would kind of do a, a uh, prehab, you know, before the rehab, and, and help them detox and get past those really difficult points. If you have any addicts in your life, you know that those are the, the most painful and hardest days for them. It's just the beginning, but that's one of the hardest points. And so they, they brought Crazy Kenny in, and he was with them for two weeks. And they, they stayed with him day and night, day and night, every hour, every minute they were with him. He started to engage in the rhythms of, of life that they had as they followed Jesus as a community. And, and, and he started to see the light. And, and two weeks later, uh, Craig says that he, uh, Kenny was going to the long-term rehab that they, that they helped him find. And he looked at him and he gave him a hug with full of affection. He said, that day, that process made a friend out of an enemy. He used to be an enemy. You thought he was the problem. But because he was the salt, because they were the light, because people need hope, because people need Jesus, that enemy became a friend. And that's, my friends, what it looks like for us to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. Our, our, our world needs hope. It needs solutions to our problems. And when, when people see our good deeds, when they see our good works, they don't glorify us. They ought not. They ought to glorify their Father in heaven because they know that he's the source of our power. He's the source of our light. Matthew 5, Jesus continues his sermon in verse 43. He says some, some really audacious, serious things. I almost fell. That was cool. It's never happened before. Ma Matthew 5, verse 43. He said this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was not in the Old Testament, but people started to teach that. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus gets to the root of our unwillingness to love. This comes full circle, right? The world tells us we've got to get revenge when we're wronged. Tells us we've got to retaliate when we've been harmed. I mean, Jesus said stuff like, hey, when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, and, and if they want to hit you again, there it is. He said, hey, if, if, there's a, if there's a Roman soldier who says, come and carry my stuff for a mile, this was normal, go with them too. Don't just offer them your tunic. Offer them your outer garment too. What, whatever. Because what he's trying to get us to understand is that the way evil is overcome, the way darkness is overcome, is not through force, 
is not through evil. It's through love. And this is where we can't forget our shaping as people of the cross. Because this is hard. Have you ever had to love an enemy? And this isn't just some like pragmatic way of like a, a little bit of a, a, a first century spin on keep your, keep your friends close and your enemies closer so you can be aware of what they're gonna do. You know, so you're ready to right there when it, when it comes time, you can handle it. That's not what he's saying. He's not really getting too pragmatic other than, hey, this is what I'm calling you to do. You've got to love your enemy. You got to pray for those who persecute you. Say, you don't have the right to repay vengeance with vengeance. Because in Romans 12, Jesus, God says, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So in other words, you got someone who's got your back, he'll handle it. Either today, tomorrow, in eternity, whatever, he's gonna handle it. Our uh, responsibility is to love, not with exceptions, but without exception. To love those who don't like you, to love those who hurt you, this is hard. Because it calls us it causes us, in order to follow what Jesus is saying, we have to pick up what? A cross. Aren't we all glad that, that Jesus did not see you as the exception to his love? <laughs> because if you think about this, uh, Jesus isn't the king who just came down to die for the peasants. He's the one who came down to die for the enemy. Because before Jesus, we were enemies of God. None of, none of us were, were passive participants in the rebellion toward God. We weren't just like innocent bystanders just kind of like hanging out, watching as it all unfolds and just like unwilling to do something good. We were all participants in the rebellion toward God Almighty. And he says, love your enemies. Why? Because he did. And you are the result of that. He says, I'm going to take enemies and I'm going to make them into my friend. I'm going to take enemies and I'm going to adopt them as my children. I'm going to take enemies and I'm going to bring them into my kingdom. I'm going to take enemies and I'm going to make them into the people that I am going to be with for eternity. My friends, you and me were enemies of God. And so he's saying, hey, that same love that you've experienced, Love with that toward everyone without exception because you weren't the exception and neither are they. So cross, righteousness, love. That's the kingdom ethic. When you want to know what it is to do, what you're supposed to do in a given situation, which you're, when you want to know what, what's good and right and the, the way you should go, the path you should take, cross, righteousness, love, we take up our cross, we say no to ourselves. We go and we look for ways that we can bring light to the darkness, where we can help the hurting, where we can bring hope to the brokenness of this world, where we can find solutions to the problems, where we do good works in the name of Jesus, and where we love 
with the kind of love that we were loved with, the love that loves enemies, not just the people who like you. And I have to think, like, as Matthew is, is recounting this moment, if you know who Matthew is, what does Jesus say? <laughs> For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Who was Matthew? A tax collector. He you don't have anything above them. See, we all have stories. We all have labels that we used to be labeled with. But, but Jesus took the tax collector and he made him his friend. He took, the, he took the, the, the religious zealot, the political zealot, who was on the other side of the tax collector. Right wing, left wing, brought them together. You see, Jesus says to love your enemies, whoever you think they are, because he did too. We live by the kingdom ethic of cross, righteousness, and love. That's our, that's our walk. That's our walk. One of the practical things that we can do as, as the church is to make peace, to invade the false peace of the world. Uh, anybody know that there's such a thing as false peace? Uh, it's those moments, right, when you're like, I'm gonna just keep my mouth shut. I'm not gonna say anything. Uh, what does that do? It creates bitterness inside of your heart. It leaves problems unresolved. Uh, when we love with the level of love Jesus had, Jesus didn't look at our problems and say, well, I'm just not gonna say anything about it. I'm just gonna, it's fine. We're just gonna ignore it. No, no, no. He said, let's, let's come to the table. Let's deal with our differences. And, and we'll find unity when we find our identity in Jesus. That's, that's where we'll come to. He wants to invade our false peace with real peace, with real peace. And what that looks like is for us as the church to be a community, a kingdom of peace, where we can have peace among each other. We should be a walking example of people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different thoughts, different, different ways of upbringings that we experienced. And we come together, generations come together with other generations, races come with, together with other races, Men and women coming together, we come together as God's example of what peace looks like. And we usher people in, come and enjoy God's kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace because we have a prince and his name is Jesus. He's the prince of peace. And so we, we make peace. I love this story. There's a, uh, a church planter. He was a former gang member and he, uh, God rescued him in the middle of prison and uh, he gave his life to, to God and he, he, he gave his, his, the rest of his life to vocational ministry and he decided to plant a church out in California where he was from. So the gang member goes in to where he used to stomp, where he used to, live, where he used to run the streets with his gang. And, and get this, this is what happens when Jesus gets a hold of you. He had a moment, there was a, a rival gang member who made his way into this church. And what do you think happened then? Someone he was cultivated to hate. That person who came in, you know what he got? Love. Because the thing is, this, this man was able to reach a lot of the people from his gang, 
who would have known the other one. But instead of being shunned, instead of being ushered out, instead of being uh, someone who they tried to destroy, they were the ones who walked with him home so that he didn't get hurt by the gang members who were outside patrolling their turf. This is what the church does. This is what Jesus does. He brings us all together who used to be enemies and now he can bring us together as his people to be people of peace. And so if God can do that with gang members, former gang members, what can he do with you? He's got a lot more work to do here in Bluffton, Indiana church. A lot more. Not everything is sunshine and rainbows, even if you think that that's true. It's not. There's a lot of things that we brush under the rug. Amen? God's got some work for us to do, church. And I believe we're the answer because he said we are. (laughs) So I hope you're ready to stand out, to not be caterpillars getting lost in the leaves of life, but to be butterflies flying about, standing out, sticking out, Because people need to have hope. They need to have light. The corruption of this world needs to be invaded by the love of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.